You're listening to a podcast from Oasis Church Waterloo. To find out more, visit www.oasiswaterloo.org. Good morning. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Dan, and I've been part of this church for 11 years. Um, I'm also part of the, on the leadership team and do various things. This week, I had a haircut. What do you think? I'm, I'm not entirely sure myself. Um, in fact, we, we were in a prayer meeting before the service. I struck my prayerful prose, pose, which is head down. And Anna said, nice hair. And I looked up to say, thanks. At which point, Danielle said, thank you. Anna said, when did you get it done? She said, two weeks ago. I was thinking, two days ago. And I politely waited for Anna or Danielle to acknowledge my new hair. They did not. But... Um, it was a bit of an ordeal, this particular haircut experience, and this really stems from my own discomfort in being in close proximity, even being repeatedly touched by someone that I don't know. So when it comes to having my hair cut, I'm a talker. I refer to the weather, to football, to holidays, anything to stave off that awkward silence. But the problem this time was that Farid, who was cutting my hair, had a very thick Algerian accent. He was softly spoken, he mumbled quite a bit, um, and he insisted on each time he said something, he'd hold a pair of clippers to my ear. So I could not hear a thing. So each time he said, I'd have to lean forward and I'd apologize, I'd say, I'm sorry, Farid, I didn't catch that, what did you say? And then he would repeat himself. And then I realized the time, and I needed a different strategy because I'd still be there now just trying to finish those conversations. So I, I changed my strategy and instead I would strain for just one discernible word, preferably a noun, I'd settle for a verb, and then do my best impression of someone who understood what he was talking about. I'd repeat the word back to him. Mm. Sisters. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. City lights. And it would go on like that for quite a while. And then I had a realization. I thought, what if he thinks I'm issuing instruction? And he's a barber. He's unlikely to be talking about sisters. He's talking about scissors. He's not talking about city lights. He's... And I said, no, no, no highlights. And I let for no highlights. And he looked at me as if I were mad. Not fair. And, and then he said, he said, no. And I broke out into a cold sweat. I was thinking it's too late. The tears were coming. I was thinking, how am I going to tell Ruth? I've got to come home with these highlights. And then he said, with your complexion, you'll look sick. And I have never known relief like it. It was amazing. From then on, I decided to adopt the tried and tested barbershop etiquette, which is stony, awkward silence. And that worked out for, for both of us quite well. Though I have to say, having been told I can't have something... There's a little bit of me that kind of wants to go back and get that. So maybe next time I'll be a fire tips Dan. Who knows? Today we're going to be talking about following Jesus. Could I have my slides on the the screen, please? About following Jesus and discipleship. Before we get there, I want to spend a little bit of time talking about spirituality. And I think spirituality or conversations about spirituality are a little bit sometimes like my barbershop experience. Because we hear little bits of these sensational, brilliant stories, miraculous stories, and we hear a little bit of questions, but we miss the context, we miss the overall thing that is said, so we 
don't really know what's going on. No one really understands the conversation. And at very least, if we take this room, there certainly will not be a consensus about what we mean by spirituality. So we're going to, to do that. First of all, I want to tell you a little bit about cumulative um, learning theory or cumulative knowledge theory, which was developed by Dr. Robert uh, Gaillet. And you may not be familiar with this, but you will understand it and you will know it. The theory basically says that yesterday's breakthrough discoveries lay the foundations for today, or today's breakthrough discoveries are the foundations for tomorrow's discoveries and learning. If you think about learning to walk, first of all, you learn to crawl, don't you? And you learn to master the movement of your four limbs. And then as your balance gets good enough, you stand up and then you start to walk. And as your, your leg muscles become strong enough, you begin to run. Or take another example, if you think about mathematics, first of all, we learn to count. And then once we master that, we move on to addition and subtraction. Some of us even move into the realms of multiplication and division, not all of us. But on those four basic principles, all complex mathematical theories are based and proven. They underpin all of those things. So you can take Pi and Pythagoras, and you can take more complicated things that Dave Parr will know about. Dave Parr studied maths at university. But all of the most brilliant and complex mathematical equations that the most brilliant mathematicians are working on now are all based on the same principles that we all learned when we were two, three, and four years old. And it goes to show the importance of first principles in ensuring that our first steps are good and strong and right. 2,000 years ago, two and a half thousand years ago, there was a, a very wise man. And he reckons that uh, we were restricted by our ability to relate to and then relay truth. So we can perceive of truth. We can perceive of true form, but we're restricted in our ability to share it. Um, he used a triangle as an example. He said, we know the rules of geometry. We know that the size, the angles of a triangle add up to 180 degrees. And Pythagoras has helped us to calculate the lengths of the sides. But our inability to draw the perfect angles and to trace a perfectly straight line means that forever we, we cannot quite get to that true form. It's just out of reach. We're restricted. So, so our best impression is only ever an impression, an attempt to get to this true form or true idea. It's a little bit like Instagram. Instagram, for me, is full of very good-looking people, very smart, very happy people, always on holiday, and then there's me. <laughs> it's like the world and me. Apart from we know that Instagram's not true. It's obvious because every photo on Instagram has been posed for. It's not in real time. It presents a false story. We have a picture of Reuben on our fridge. In fact, we have a lot of pictures of Reuben and Ari on our fridge. But there's one particular one where you look at this picture and you would think Reuben's the happiest child who has ever lived. And the subtext beneath it is he's happy because he's got great parents. But what that picture does not tell you, what that photograph does not tell you, is that just a couple of minutes before it was taken, 
he had incandescent rage. He was completely inconsolable. And the only way we could placate him was by bribing him with um, chocolate ice cream, which renders us bad parents, but him a good child. But of course, he's happy, out comes the camera, and <laughs> the world just knows. He's a happy child, they're great parents. Photos do not give the full picture. Um, the guy who developed that theory was Plato. And he, he went on further to say, um, all, for, all true form, true ideas, they kind of exist in another state, in another realm, a heavenly realm. And then there's this temporal realm. And everything that we understand and deal with, well, that's just an impression of that, that true state, the true perfect ideas. And the best we can do is try to imitate them. But he said it's like shadows. We're dealing with shadows. This is important because Plato had a famous student who was called Aristotle. And then Aristotle, um, the King Philip II of Macedon or Macedonia, said, hey, Aristotle, I've got a son. You want to teach him? Aristotle said, sure. His son was Alexander the Great, who went on to basically conquer the whole world. And then years later, the Romans um, conquered the Greeks. But this idea, this philosophy that Plato developed continued on in a great tradition. And it was within the Roman context that the church was born. So this is really important now because the prevailing philosophy says there's two realms, there's two states. There's the heavenly state, the real state, and then there is the lower temporal realm, and that's where we all reside. And Christians at the time, I imagine said, it's, it's not like that. The real realm, that heavenly realm, that upper realm that you're talking about, it's not just ideas and forms. That's the reality of God. That's God's will. That's what we should be aspiring to, not these, these abstract forms and ideas. We should be aspiring to God and the reality of God, God's will. And that's where, if we fast forward the, the clock 2,000 years, we've kind of got to now. But we're a little bit confused, and this is why I want to just explain this a little. Because we're now in this state where we kind of understand spirituality as being something other than everything else we experience. So we talk about spirituality in an abstract term. Spirituality, the spirit, it's somewhere up there, but you know, we all grovel down here you know, with our physical needs and emotional needs. But that doesn't make sense of the earliest Jewish theology and it doesn't make sense of the newest and the latest scientific discoveries. Scientists know, and we know, that all of these things are interrelated, they're integrated, they overlap. If you're doing well mentally, that has an effect on you physically. If you're struggling physically, you know that it has an emotional cost. But if we, if we go with this, we talk about our spiritual well-being, our emotional, our mental, our physical well-being. Well, what do we mean when we say our spiritual well-being? We all say it, so someone must know. What do we mean when we say our spiritual well-being? The truth is, <laughs> not many of us have a clue. We just say it, we smile, nod and repeat. I think the answer is in some of the earliest truths that the, that the Jewish community wanted to write down and live by. In the first book of 
um, what has become our Bible. In the first chapter, it says God spoke the world into being, spoke creation into, spoke matter into existence, and then created human, humanity, humankind, and breathed into them. And the word breath is spirit. So the picture that Genesis 1 says, and, and how does creation come into being? It's through speaking. Speaking requires breath. But the idea, I think, without reading too much into this beautiful piece of poetry and theology, the idea is that there's an original good God. So you know that the Jews grew up in a world that was a pantheon of gods, and they said, no, 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 there's one God, one original good source of all this, everything we know, and it's, and it's their energy. It's the spirit that creates everything and sustains everything. Therefore, our spirituality, if everything is spiritual, spirituality has to make sense of everything. It is not next to physical needs. It is not next to emotional or mental needs. It encompasses, underpins, it goes deeper. It underpins, wraps up everything. Spirituality put another way, I think, is reconciling all of those things back to their original intent, back to God's design. It's our physicality and emotions and everything else bound out, bound up, and, and played out how God wills it to be. That means that if your spirituality allows for the abuse of your body, or another person, your spirituality is broken. If it accepts slavery or marginalization or poverty, your spirituality is not generous enough. If it tolerates resentment, it's not gracious enough. If it fails to make sense of our place among the stars, it's not big enough. If it does not encompass all of these things and compels us to love the least, we must go deeper into our spirituality. If you struggle to accept the first thing that's written in scripture about you, and it says, you are very good. If you struggle to accept that, you need to go deeper into spirituality. If you struggle to look at yourself in the mirror and say, I am loved, I am enough, you need to go deeper into Christian spirituality. Spirituality is binding up everything we know, all of, the wo- all of the created world, and it's reconciling it to God's perfect will. So with just a couple of minutes to go, I should probably start talking about what it is that I'm supposed to be talking about, and that is following Jesus and discipleship. Fifteen years ago, oops, in this very room, it's been refurbished since, um, on the 15th of September, and not 15 years ago, a number of years ago, some time ago, Ruth and I got married. It was in this room. It was at that time, the stage was over there. And on that day, in front of friends and family, I told Ruth that I loved her and I'd honor her and all those things that you do. And anyone who has been married um, or knows anyone who's been married knows that once you've said those things publicly, five minutes, crikey, once you've said those things publicly, you know that that's it job done, you're going to live a very happy life forever after. That's entirely true if you're mad. The truth is, 
that if you want to have a good relationship or a good marriage, it is a commitment to seeing the face of God in the other person, isn't it? It's a commitment to giving them the most when there's nothing coming back. It's a commitment to serving the other person. It is not a binary thing of, I've said this once, therefore it's done forever. It's not, it's not an emotion. And yet our understanding of what it means to follow Christ is, is far less sophisticated. Have you ever had one of those conversations where, where someone said, oh, is that person a Christian? And you go, oh, I, th- I think they're a Christian, yes. Uh, you know, it's a binary thing. And they go, oh, I thought they were a little bit misogynist and sexist, but I must have misunderstood them. Uh, you know, because they're Christians, so they are good people. But being a Christian is a little bit like marriage. It's a little bit like a relationship. It is not a binary thing where you say, yes, this is me, I'm done. It's a commitment to following Christ. And there are times when you feel it and it's easy. There are times when it's blimmin' hard work and you you don't really, you can't understand any of it. So I just want to show you this. Um, This is kind of a map the church so on the outside we have the crowd and then we have the congregation and the core and then Christ in the center Christ referred to the church um, well he probably referred to the church a number of times but in the Bible there's only two instances of Jesus referring to the church they're both in Matthew and the picture that we get is that it's a Christ-centered community a community of people who are committed to living life like Christ that is spiritual the whole of creation reconciles to God living like Christ And it's a community that supports each other. And sometimes on our journey of being Christians, there's times when we're on the outside, but we're coming in. There's times when we're in the middle, and actually, although we might look like we know what's going on and we're part of it all, actually we're not feeling it and we're drifting out. Being Christian is not a binary state. It ebbs and flows. If you, just one illustration very quickly. Have you ever met someone who says they are a non-gravitist? As if they don't believe in gravity, they don't understand it, and therefore the rules of gravity do not apply. You don't. We all commit, we we are all subject to the rules of gravity. And I think, I think we can learn a little bit from that. Because the rules of creation, the life of Christ, these are things that are more real than we understand. It's about living life the way that the whole universe was created. The best scientists in the world agree that the greatest rule in the universe is love. We are at our strongest and our best when we are diverse and accepting. That's a rule of the universe. It's also the rule that Christ lived by. It's not a binary state. It's something we work on. It's not a feeling. It's something that you commit to each day. As a church, we are committed to pursuing that. We are committed to seeing the face of God in our neighbor, the people on the street. And there are days when it's incredibly hard, but there are days when, when it's easy. But each day we should stand up and say, I am moving to the center. This is a decision. This is a, the lifestyle I want because these are the rules that govern the universe. And this is hopeful and it's life-giving. I wanted to use that, that reading at the beginning because there are times when it's really hard and it costs us. And I think we have to embrace that cost sometimes because it's about what kind of people do we want to be. And this is a community that can support us when we are in need. One last slide before um, I hand over to to Anna. 
and it is just to, to talk a little bit about Lent and wilderness again. And there's, just because it's coming at the end of a sermon, you know, you don't need to do it. There are other ways to respond. But for me, I think I've realized that in my life there are occasions where I fail to respond spiritually. I fail to respond in the way that makes sense of all things because I have physical needs or emotional needs. And yet I read about Jesus who put it all on the line and committed to this, the spiritual reality in order to serve what God was asking him to do, pushing him to do. It's a struggle but it's something we commit to. And I think, well, through Lent, I'm going to try to fast Monday to Saturday, sun up to sundown. And what I hope to learn is a little bit more commitment, resilience. What does it mean to ensure that my physical needs, emotional needs, mental needs, all subscribe to and are subservient, subservient to my spiritual needs? Because that is the reality that I want to serve. Thank you. <laughs> Absolutely fantastic, Dan. Um, kept a time very well there. Uh, so I did say it's a soapbox Sunday, actually. It's uh, more a grill, grill the preacher Sunday. If you were here last week, you'll know we did this and we're doing it again uh, next week with Steve. Um, so this is your opportunity now to pose some questions to Dan uh, about what he was saying about discipleship. Uh, or any other questions that you have on the theme of discipleship, you could also uh, ask Dan, see if he's got any answers to them. So, uh, Danielle and I hope some able assistants uh, are going to be running around now with bits of paper and a pen. The guys at the back are going to put some music on. Uh, so have a little chat with the person sat next to you about what Dan said. What questions do you have? Make sure you get a piece of paper if you've got a question. Wave your hand uh, if they seem a long way away from you or run and go and greet them and take a piece of paper from them uh, so we can get this done as quickly as possible. Thank you very much. Uh, so the first question we've got is, what if Christ is actually in the crowd and the core is not Christ-centered community, uh, but churchiness and religion? But, but sorry, what, but, church. but churchiness and religion. And I th- do you know what? I think it sometimes has become that. I think sometimes um, church becomes a culture, doesn't it? And we all end up serving the culture and tradition and habits and we always need to mix it up. We always need to be searching for Christ. And I, and I, so, so forgive me, I think this question is a little abstract because um, we've taken what is a funny little drawing to illustrate a point and we've made it something more complex and concrete. But I think that the point of that is that we should always keep Christ in the center. We should always keep searching for Christ. We should always live in tension with scripture and not take that approach that we, kind of, that we think we understand it and we think this is what Christ would do. We always have to push ourselves to be more loving and compassionate. And we always have to be open to, to question and to testing each other. And the other thing that that, um, that that little diagram illustrated was simply it's about intentionality. Where's your core? Are you moving towards Christ? Are you searching for Christ? Or are you happy to be on the peripheries? So, so, so forgive me if that doesn't answer the question entirely, but I think <laughs> this is just a diagram to illustrate a couple of fairly abstract points. But um, yeah, sometimes I think we do have it wrong, but the point is we've always got to be focused back on Christ and searching for that reality together. Okay, thank you. And a slightly related question someone's asked. Um, if Jesus is the head of the church, how come the church over time has drifted so far away from true spirituality? So the, the why question now. Why does the church drift away from Jesus, basically? 
And it's perhaps the same, the same thing again, isn't it? We, we get into ruts, we get into tradition. We, we, so so you, that little story that I started to tell you about Plato and Aristotle and Alexander the Great and then the Roman Empire, you know that perhaps the next step in that journey was that the, the Roman Empire um, adopted the church, basically. And the church overnight went from being a persecuted kind of house movement to one of the most powerful, uh, essentially became an empire, one of the most powerful movements, the most powerful religion in the world. And with it, with it became um, administrative processes and all the rest of it. Um, I feel I'm straying from the question which I've partially forgotten. If Christ is the head of the church, so how... And it goes back to that first question. I think it's the same question. I think we always, we simply always have to be serving the other. We always have to keep Christ at our core. And, and it's the moment that we start to defend our own rights and we start to protect our traditions that we lose sight of the other. Christ always served the other, didn't he? He was not big into tra tradition. He was big into including other people. <clears throat> he was big into making the circle bigger. And it's when we start making that circle, restricting that circle around us, which I think is when we, we lose our way. I think we always have to do what Christ said. Love your neighbour. Love God. Okay. Uh, so some churches, some traditions will say, uh, if you want to remain dynamic and not fall into tradition and religion but stick with Jesus, you need to follow the leadings of the Spirit. So they've said, what then are we to make of more otherly presentations of the Spirit, i.e. tongues, people being slain, are such things a sham? Sometimes, and no. Yes and no. This is, can we move on? Um, <clears throat> um, I, do you know, I, I think, so this is the same thing again to perhaps some of what I was talking to. <clears throat> we have elevated um, spirituality to a mysteri mysterious level. And it's something that we're taught we should aspire to, but it's something very different from what we experience day to day. So it's strange that we all confess to believe in a creator God, and yet we don't think that all of this around us is spiritual. If God is creator, and it's his spirit through which it says life is given, then physics... All the rules of physics, which we kind of, we are led to believe we should, the spirit of God kind of transcends, while the rules of physics are merely the colours with which God paints, I think. I don't think there's anything more spiritual than the rules of physics and chemistry. And they teach us something profound about God. And I also think that, um, that the interdependence with which the creation has come around, the way we are stronger together, the way the the but um, biologists will tell you that a diverse structure is a healthy structure. We know that from genetics. And, and astrophysicists can look at the universe and look at how it's held together. It's all held together, diversity, but we're held together in love. <clears throat> and I think that says a lot about spirituality. And it's strange that we always want to get away from what we can understand and think that the reality of God is not here. The reality of God is not... In, in you it's, so, so going back to that question I asked earlier if spirituality is a distinct part well then what for the rest of us 
what for our physical and emotional needs. Our spirituality has to make sense of our physical and emotional needs. Um, and then this question became a little bit more complicated. Tongues um, and people being slain in the spirit. I th- quite genuinely, I think this is probably worth giving more time to because I think it's, it's complex. But here's another thing. Um, I think because we are spiritually made, we relate to God in profound ways. It's, have you ever been to a, a music gig and, um, and the music's so, I mean, it's really great and everyone in the audience has their arms up and it almost becomes a spiritual moment and then you're kind of sat on the edge as a Christian and you're kind of thinking, mm, this is strange, must be pagan, don't participate. But perhaps there's something profoundly true about people coming together in a moment that makes sense and it just celebrates life and creativity. And in that moment, life is drawn together and you can say, yes, there's something bigger. There's something better when we're together. And we articulate this truth in different ways and it makes, it makes itself known at different times. And I think from the outside, you can say, that doesn't make sense to me and you can condemn it. But I think, there's, I think it makes sense of our how God created us at a deeper level than we understand. So, <clears throat> so with tongues, I know some people who have spoken in tongues. I don't speak in tongues. I've tried. Um, I got as far as ordering a kebab, but no more. I think that, I think clearly sometimes God moves in miraculous ways, but not always in the ways that we expect. And when we make that a test for something, we deny God in the ordinary. And I think we serve a God who meets us in the ordinary. So when we say that God only works in the miraculous, well, what are we saying about our lives today and tomorrow morning and the commitment that we have to make each day? Okay, thanks, Dan. I think this is going to be our (coughs) final question. Uh, The question is, how much does discipline play a role in living a life closer to God? So this is something that I think I'm learning. I have learnt through the lack of discipline <laughs> that perhaps it requires discipline. I think if you want to do good, at, be good at anything, it requires a huge amount of discipline, doesn't it? Is it not strange that when it comes to our careers or our hobbies, or we watch, I don't know, you might have watched Match the Day last night and you might have seen that Crystal Palace won again, Um, All of those people talk about the discipline. Every athlete talks about the discipline of getting up in the morning, being committed to their goal. And they say, at the weekend, Roger Federer won his 100th ATP title. And Roger Federer will always say, it's always been his dream and his goal, and he's committed to practicing, and he loves it, but he, he works so hard at it. And then when it comes to following God living a lifestyle like Christ, we go, yeah, it's this kind of binary state. Say the sinner's prayer, I'm in, job done, happy for life. It's not. If we're committed to walking the way of Christ, it was really hard work. So going back to this Lent and wilderness, the reason why I started thinking about it was because before Jesus started his public ministry, we're told that he went away into the wilderness for a long time to prepare, to prepare for all the questions and the doubts he would, he would face. And I think the same is true for us. We need to prepare ourselves. We need to work hard at this. We need to become familiar with our doubts and our uncertainties and our weaknesses and our various needs. And we need to learn to put those aside and serve God first. I think discipline is key. Reading scripture, 
learning this story in which we play a part, if we're serious about representing God to the other, and representing God, being a Christian, I think it means reflecting the love of God. I think we need to be serious about developing habits, and habits are not prepared and are not learned in a single prayer. Habits are learned over a lifetime. So I think discipline is key. I think that's one of the wake-up calls that I'm getting. This is why over Lent I want to be learning discipline. I want to be pushing myself to say, if I want to walk like Jesus, if I want to have this picture of spirituality that makes sense of all things, then I need to submit all things. You've been listening to a podcast from Oasis Church Waterloo. To find out more, visit www.oasiswaterloo.org.